Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash God is Gray. Now, on to the episode. If you're a Christian and you've inherited all the good stuff from the gospel that we love, the liberation, the love, the freedom, the grace, the fact that we get to be who we are, all those groovy, wonderful things we love about Jesus, the transformative power of Christ, right? You get to keep all that, but you don't get to get rid of all the shit, the defending slavery, the oppression of women for thousands of years, the oppression of queer folks, the oppression of our Jewish siblings. I mean, you don't get to just say, I don't want any parts of that. Hi, beautiful people. Today, I'm bringing you a conversation with myself and Reverend Lenny Duncan. He is a mission developer, pastor at Messiah Lutheran Church, Vancouver, Washington, and the author of Dear Church, a love letter from a black preacher to the whitest denomination in the U.S. I know you also have another book coming this summer called United States of Grace, but I'm so honored to talk to you because I've been doing more and more of my research on you uh, leading up to this conversation, and you have been talking about the issues that are on the forefront of our minds right this second for years. I watched a YouTube video of yours from like 2016 that could have been shot yesterday. Yeah. Um... Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, thanks for allowing me to, to <coughs> talk to your community um, during a really important time uh, for black lives in this country. Um, um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard not to talk about this, right? I mean, we're living the same summer every four to six years in America now. And it's the same cycle. Uh, a community is oppressed to the point that um, something becomes a flashpoint and it could be economic oppression. It could be um, some of the legal systems. It could be some of the political systems. It doesn't matter what it is, right? I mean, in Ferguson, you know, after the investigation, what they discovered was that um, I think it was something like 60 or 70% of the city's budget was from citations. Wow. So this police force had been spending most of its time uh, creating the entire city budget off a of citation. So, so, so exploiting the city budget off of poor uh, 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 black and brown people in the area. So when Michael Brown dies, after years of this harassment, I mean, people were tens of thousands of dollars in debt because they were taking payday loans to pay off fines so they could keep their you know, driver's license so they could drive to work. And it was this never-ending cycle. I mean, people were fed up in Ferguson. And when Darren Wilson, who has done less time in jail than most protesters I know, was released and nothing happened to him, that city exploded. And it's the same thing on Lake Street right now in the Twin Cities. There is years and years of systemic issues. It's not just that one of us died again. 
it's everything that leads up to it. And then that moment becomes a flashpoint. And then it ha- we forget and it starts over again. The church abdicates its responsibility. White folks go back to um, what they were doing. That's it. And, and, and then another one of my cousins or, you know, just today um, on my Twitter feed, if you look right now, um, my little brother, Daniel Duncan, was assaulted at St. Agnes Hospital in Fresno, California by the security there and held for four hours in the basement after being tased 12 times and beaten because he was bringing his wife to receive mental health treatment. Now, I really want your listeners to think about this for a second, okay? It's the middle of a global pandemic. There's been nothing but black trauma on TV. They both lost their jobs. They're struggling to make it financially. She has a mental health crisis and goes to the helpers, right? Isn't that what Mr. Rogers told me when I thought white people were safe? Go to the helpers. So they go to the helpers. They go to the people who are supposed to help them in the community. Instead, what happens is as she's having a mental health um, um, you know, issue or flare up with some of her chronic stuff and, 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 and some of the work that she's been doing around her illness, all this stuff is just causing some of her symptoms to come out again and how this hospital responds, this Catholic hospital grounded in Christian ideals, how they respond is they beat her husband in front of her. Right? And so this is what we mean when we say Black Lives Matter. What we're saying is it's not just the police. It's the entire thing. Because here's this person doing all the things they're supposed to be doing. They're social distancing. They're, you know, I mean, they're doing everything. And, like, they're having this mental health crisis, and the paramedics have to come. And then my brother comes home and realizes that, you know, there's paramedics there. And he rushes to the hospital to find out what's going on with his wife. He hears her screaming. Right. And he reacts. And instead, you know, any some any of us, any of us would react like that if that was our partner. Absolutely. You know, so, I mean, and, and this is this is, you know, I mean, this is Tuesday. We're talking. Um, I don't know when you're going to post this, but I'm, I'm afraid to see what Wednesday is going to bring. Yeah. Um, so sorry for that rant. I've had a little bit of coffee and <laughs> I've been I've been handling media from Fresno, California since eight this morning. So. Yeah, uh, please. No apologies are in line whatsoever. I just uh, I know I've only got like 45 minutes of your time and I want to, if possible, get as deep of an education on this as we can. And yeah, I thank you so much for lending your voice to the community. I have a very diverse community, uh, LGBTQ, all different races, and I know they're all waiting to hear what we have to say. And for me, I just want to platform your voice so badly because of your knowledge on this. And you've also led so many lives. I'm, I'm reading your book. It says high school dropout, drug dealer, sex worker, street corner poet, hitchhiker, Dharma bomb small town drifter, seminarian, political activist, father, pastor, lover, public theologian, and writer. So all of those experiences to me give you such a broad and diverse understanding of the world and all of these broken systems that you must be privy to. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm writing about that in United States of Grace. It's my memoir, um, you know, that I'll, I, pre-orders will be up in like a month. I don't know. I mean, it just feels like an icky time to talk about a new book, but I talk about my story. Um, and yeah, uh, the way I grew up and I just, I just happen to have one of those very uniquely American stories. I'm, I'm, I, 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 
I mean, the whole premise of the new book is that uh, setting aside our system, setting aside our political leaders, and setting aside um, uh, 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 the institutions that continue to oppress people in this country, setting all that aside, what America is, is this conversation we're having. It's you and me. It's you and this community. It's all of us hearing the suffering and the cry in the world, right, and responding to it. That's the America I know, right? Um, and, I, and I feel like people need to hear that, right? Like that happens still in this country, you know, um, and it doesn't come from our leaders a lot, and it doesn't come from the church a lot, which is the biggest heartbreak. But, um, you know, I mean, being a queer black man and living in this country, being homeless, um, having encountered the prison industrial complex, it gives me a different power analysis than other clergy um, because they're talking about it from theory. But, like, you know, I spent over a year, almost a year in solitary and juvenile. Like, you spend a year by yourself isolated and watch your mind melt in front of you, and then your That's personality comes out of that room, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, this is, you, you know, it just gives me a different power analysis. Um, yeah. But, you, you know, in Dear Church, I believe that the call of the, the Christian church in the 21st century, the whole premise of the book is, is to dismantle white supremacy, that Christians have no other call right now. And you may say, Lenny, what about, what about the environment? Lenny, what about queer phobia? Lenny, what about transphobia? Lenny, what about economic empowerment? How do we dismantle capitalism? And what I talk about in the book is that white supremacy is, you have to think of it as demonic. I mean, you have to think about it as other, otherworldly, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, like infused, intelligent, malevolent evil that constantly shifts and change. And that's what systemic evil and systemic racism looks like, I, I think, from a, from, from a scriptural standpoint. But my point is white supremacy is the grandfather demon. And if we exercise that demon, then the demons of patriarchy, the, 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 the demons of heterosexism, the demons of capitalism, the demons of, 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 of all these other things, they're all going to be cast away too. And we have to throw ourselves behind this mission, not because I think white people care. The premise of the book is, is that there will be no Christian witness in the 21st century if we don't do this work within 50 years. And one thing that white Protestants are obsessed with is legacy. I mean, the Episcopalians, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you, they're all obsessed with legacy, right? Um, there will be no Christian witness if we, if black lives don't matter in this country. And if you think that's not important, if you think Christianity will go on, North American Christianity and North American theology is the most exported theology around the world. It is behind some of the most heinous things that still happen through neocolonialism. And if we don't get it right here, other people around the world are affected by it. And I don't think there will be a thing like Christianity in 50 years if we don't throw ourselves fully into this work how do we like begin uh, ceasing to conflate christianity with patriotism and capitalism because i was raised in a church that i somehow felt like i wasn't allowed to say that capitalism isn't working that white supremacy is a problem that patriotism does not equate to jesus's messages how do we get people to understand and not feel attacked? How do we invite people into the conversation that are having such a difficult time removing these concepts from the church? 
I, I, I think the first thing that we have to understand is that, you know, in a lot of ways, the progressive church movement's been waiting for a lot of our elders to join the church triumphant, mm-hmm. which is a polite way for pastors to say we've been waiting for a lot of people who've been in a way to die. I mean, that's just the truth. I mean, there was just a generation that was entrenched in this idea and a lot of them came back from World War II with these ideas, and the, the world had an existential crisis and, and thought that they had defeated fascism. Clearly, fascism is still alive and well in this world and the concepts of it. Um, it's hard to kill an idea with bombs. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, they came back with these ideas. Um, I mean, even if you just, you know, I talk a lot about in the book about uh, 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 representations of Christ, right? And you see I have mostly black representations of Christ behind me or, you know, um, empowering ones of, 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 our, of, of the Virgin Mary, um, you know, that I talk about. I mean, so, 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 so what I'm talking about is like those symbols we get, right? Like, so if you look at the average Protestant church, they have that white doobie brother Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, for the ass, seek, knock, you know what I mean, picture, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the reason that became so popular was because in World War II, the USO gave those, gave all the guys who were shipping over a card, and some Lutheran guy painted a picture of Jesus that looked like him, like a skinny Norwegian white dude, right? But those, <laughs> a lot of those guys came back from World War II and credited the fact that they didn't get their heads blown off with that little USO card with the Lord's Prayer on it tucked in their helmet, right? So what do they do? They come back traumatized from war. Um, they think they've defeated evil. They, you know, start putting American flags in the sanctuary, and they start painting pictures of this doobie brother Jesus the USO gave them once. And suddenly it's everywhere. That seems innocuous, but if I live in a world that tells me that um, white people are not on my side or that whiteness is out to get me or that um, every white person I encounter um, seems to not have my best interests at heart. And then every image I see of God is of a white Jesus. Well, then I start to believe that that God is not for me. How can I believe that a God who looks like the police, the teachers, the firemen, and everyone else who treat me like I'm subhuman is suddenly for me? And those messages get instilled in children in a very young age. It's the same reason why we want to see representations of, of, of femme or female or, or, or female identifying or women scientists as much as we can in media or artists or leaders. It's the same kind of theory that white feminism seems to be able to grasp around women but can't seem to grasp around the importance, particularly in theological circles, of rich, diverse representations of Christ. I mean, these are the earliest images. If I tell a little white boy that God is white, and then I see black people acting out, there are implicit messages that are deep down in me. So, I mean, that's just, you know, I don't know. That's just one thing. Yeah. I'm sorry I'm ranting. No, you're, you're not. There's so much to unpack. I wish we could speak for seven hours, which, because that's like, that would skim the surface of what we need to discuss. Uh, another thing I'm so curious about, well, first of all, you're talking about Mr. Rogers and, uh, you know, us having this idea that we're supposed to be trusting these figures, but in reality, that has been a lie for Black people. You can't safely go to a cop for anything. I have to tell you, I am so curious and just banging my head against the wall, talking to Christians that have an answer for everything. 
I say black lives matter, you say all lives matter or blue lives matter. I say, you know, look at the Jesus that's white. How did he turn white? You say, oh, because God is white. Like I've heard the stupidest arguments and people are just clinging to this. Is it because we've been safe with white movies and we don't want to dismantle the system because it works for us? I, I, I don't know. <clears throat> You know, the, the working kind of praxis that I use is that most, I, that most white people aren't actively racist, that um, white supremacy is a system that people um, sort of benefit from either consciously or unconsciously, and they usually don't have a reason to examine it or engage it. Um, unless someone brings it to their attention. Let's say they have a loved one who's a person of color and or they get involved in maybe a church group and or an organizing group that brings this stuff to their attention. Um, and so white supremacy doesn't need active racists to function anymore. It doesn't need the Klan. It doesn't need the Proud Boys. It doesn't need skinheads. It is baked into the very system of what America is. So um, in that sense, um, in 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 that sense, um, people aren't people aren't in my mind malicious. Now, have I met active racists? Are they out there? Yes, you know what I mean. But but for the most part, most Christians I meet are like that. Um, that's the first thing. I think the first thing is that most people who are truly fighting for liberation know that I'm fighting for my oppressor's freedom, even if they don't know it. And even if they scream and fight and scratch and try and kill me at the end like a cornered animal, that I'm freeing them. They just can't see the bars to their cage as clearly as I can see mine. Mm. Um, so, so, so using that as, as, as a praxis for liberation theology is what it's popularly called. Using that as my praxis, well, then it keeps me from getting too bitter. It keeps me from getting too angry. It keeps me from not from, – from dehumanizing you in my eyes, right? Yeah. So I, I, I think that's a, that, that, that's a good thing. I think the other thing is, like, you just turned on this YouTube video, and you're like, what the fuck is this pastor talking about? Well, then I, I – I would just say to you that like everyone gets to start where they get to start and whatever your journey is, that's your journey, right? I'm not going to take that from you. I take umbrage with you when you realize that there is a journey to take and you refuse to take it. Um, so how do you break through that stuff in the Christian church? I, you know, I, I, I think it has to be a real holistic effort. I think it, I mean, if you're going to do that sort of thing, you either have to start from scratch or you have to have some people who are really willing to, to, to leverage the stuff in the church. But, 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 but the big thing is, is like, it's got to be a whole, it's got to be part of your worship. It's got to be part of the songs you pick. It's got to be part of the liturgies you put together. It's got to be about all the language you talk about. It's got to be the way you celebrate the great Thanksgiving at the table for the Eucharist. I mean, all of it has to be a united message, um, including your preaching, your teaching, as well as other things. Living an anti-racist lifestyle can start out with small things, right? But a church has to be committed to being that space. Um, I can tell you that Black Lives Matter, as an organization, in my experience, and most real organizers who are into black liberation want nothing to do with the church. And it doesn't matter if it's the white church or the black church. The church in itself has failed the, the, the greatest social movement of the 21st century consistently. And most likely because it was started by three queer black women, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, but I mean, but, but that's just the truth, right? 
So what the church can do is move alongside some of these movements. You know, there's a little church right next door um, to the police station on Lake Street. It's a little Lutheran church. I'm going to look up the name of it while I'm talking. I'm not um, ignoring you. Um, but, they, but, but they're right next door to the police station that was burned down. And what they did was is they, 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 whether they liked it or not, they became chaplains to the revolution. And so they went out there with water. They went out there with prayer. They went out there with food. They went out there with medical um, equipment, uh, um, uh, 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 medical supplies. They they connected people. They made sure that there was a lost and found at their church, as well as a bulletin board for people to figure out where other people were. Um, and they, and they became a space that was known for being this little bit of the kingdom of God, a block away from where the entire country is watching everything burn, right? Mm -hmm. So those are the places that the church can really kind of fit in. Um, but to get to that place, I know those two pastors, their names are Ingrid and Angela, and they're incredible Lutheran pastors, right? But they've been doing work for two, three years to get that community ready to react to that moment. Mm -hmm. And so you have to put in the law. There are no shortcuts to this. This is a lifestyle. This is if you want to dismantle white supremacy, it's going to be a lifetime journey, and um, and you know you get to start where you get to start. If this is the first thing that woke up your spirit, welcome to the table. Yeah, we're trying to make sure there's a seat for everyone. Yeah, um, I think you know Joe Lumen. She's doing a lot of work about decolonizing faith. I interviewed her and she stunned me because she made me realize that I was singing a song about slavery and how God freed me as a 12 year old white girl, you know, middle class outside of Philly. And she was like, that song is about slaves. And my head almost exploded because, and those are the ways that we've been consistent by taking these hymns and making them ours and colonizing yeah. and telling people that our faith is superior to everything else. And I just wanted to ask you, because in your book, you were talking about how you worded it and said something like, I'm under the same sentence as a yeah. Dylan Roof, which sounds like, you I know, am. yeah, can you explain like, why stay in the church? Why do this work within the church, within the faith when it's been so contentious and it is rot? Yeah, I... I, the, the, there's a couple things around that. I, I think the first thing in the chapter, um, the chapter's called Dylan Roof is a Lutheran and so am I. And if you don't know who Dylan Roof is, he's a young man that walked into um, Mother Emanuel um, AME Church um, and, um, and uh, killed nine people um, a few years ago. In the middle and of the walked Bible out study. alive. Yeah, and walked yeah. out alive. They, the, the cops took him to McDonald's on the way to the station, actually which was like one of the most egregious things I think that happened throughout that whole thing. Uh, white supremacists, uh, fully converted online, had made this plan, had picked that location because the terror it would put in the black community, knew that the Bible study was open, sat there 20 minutes while they preached and teached to him and welcomed him in, and then stood up and killed everyone. He was an EC, he was an ELCA, uh, 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 um, ELCA um, Lutheran, I am, uh, which is the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. I am a pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, called and ordained through apostolic succession and all those other fancy white terms. I'm not sure what they mean. So, um, right, like, I'm in the same church body as this young man, 
And so Dylan Roof is a Lutheran and so am I. I'm under the same sentence as him. If I don't do the work to change the church, then my actions are no different than Dylan's. And um, I also wanted to humanize Dylan in the story. I didn't want, you know, it's easy to say Dylan was, a, especially in Lutheran circles, what was that? Dylan was made into a monster, right? Mm-hmm. Dylan was made into a, um, a boogeyman. But yet, you know, my argument is that Dylan could be sitting in your confirmation class right now. Yeah. And I actually spent a lot of time on the book tour saying that exact line, Dylan could be in your confirmation class right now. And uh, Dylan's confirmation teacher approached me after one of those talks and how she's been walking um, with this guilt that she missed something. Um, And her husband was actually roommates with Reverend Clemente Pickney, who was one of the Emmanuel Nine. And so it had all these, and and that's what I mean, we're under the same sentence. We're in the same community, right? Like I'm saying these things about Dylan. I'm not saying them in a vacuum. I'm saying them in the same spaces that the people who try to raise him right are in, right? Who are walking around with this, with this brokenness and this hurt, right? Yeah. And so like, I'm under the same sentence. I can't, I can't say, well, I'm one of the progressive Christians. I'm one of the queer affirming ones. I'm one of the non-racist ones. If you're a Christian and you've inherited all the good stuff from the gospel that we love, the liberation, the love, the freedom, the grace, the fact that we get to be who we are, the God, the fact that God wants us to have incredibly rich um, lives, whether that be our social lives, spiritual lives, sexual lives, whatever, all those groovy, wonderful things we love about Jesus, the transformative power of Christ, right? You get to keep all that, but you don't get to get rid of all the shit, the defending slavery, the oppression of women for thousands of years, the oppression of queer folks, the oppression of our Jewish siblings. I mean, you don't get to just say, I don't want any parts of that. And I, that's one of my big concerns with the progressive Christian movement is that we want to pretend like, well, we're not them. No, we're them. And I, I think a more, I, I think a proper spiritual response is we are them. We've realized what we've done. Help us be better. Yes. Yes. Could you uh, talk us through why the, like what your perspective is on police? Because I can see someone just getting a hot button moment and reading that the police force, like police just need to be eradicated and stopped and dismantled. And I think that scares a lot of people, alienates people, which whatever, but I just want to hear from your perspective why the system is so oppressive and, and demonic, as you say. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah, I, you know, when we, call, when we talk about the abolition of police um, and the abolition of policing systems in America, I mean, you have to understand the history of it. The first sheriff departments were started to, to catch runaway slaves. And after that, it was to enforce the, the black codes and the antebellum South. I mean, law enforcement in this country was founded on a racist premise, right? And now you expect it to be different mm-hmm. when we've literally done no work on that in 200 years, 400 years from my people's perspective. Um, so that's the first thing. If you don't understand the, the, the history of law enforcement, that's one thing. The other thing is, again, if you're using that the praxis I gave you around liberation theology that you know you're fighting for your oppressor's freedom as well as your own, these guys are, 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 are under the same system. They're, they're being trained, taught, encouraged, 
and 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 raised to be these violent ju- uh, 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 um, uh, jackboots for 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 what's going on right now, right? Mm-hmm. Like those guys are suffering under the same PTSD I am because I live in a, you know I grew up in a neighborhood where there were constant gunshots. The crack epidemic was allowed to run wild. There was no economic investment. We didn't even have grocery stores around us, and and so of course. Everything's collapsing in on itself. Of course, crime is rampant. I'm suffering from PTSD from growing up there. And then they send these guys from the suburbs to work there 12 hours a day. You think they don't have PTSD? They are victims of the same white supremacist system as we are. And, 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 and the, the, the problem is, is that a lot of police officers are willing victims. They are willing participants. They realize they're getting screwed. They realize they're not making the community better. They realize they're not changing anything. They realize that they're not making anything improved at all that they're going to run into the same crimes from the same people every day and it's just going to be a pattern that repeats itself and they're willing to do it and they're willing to brutalize people in that system those are the people who are within law enforcement everyone talks about the good cops where are they when these happen why has not one officer come forward in any of these cases where's the officer from Trayvon's case, you get to talk about the evidence and, and the things that were changed during that. Where are the officers around Mike Brown? Are you going to tell me that every one of these insta- instances, the, the police were completely innocent, even the ones where you watch black people be shot in the back from 20 feet away, 40 feet away, 50 feet away? Why is it always citizens that turn in this footage? Why is it never their compatriots? So listen, I understand there's guys who don't do that stuff on the force, but when they turn a blind eye to the guys who do because of some code of honor or loyalty, no, they're they, they meant to be loyal to the community. This is why the policing system has to be abolished. We have to come up with a better, more equitable way to, to, to do restorative justice in our communities, and we have to have this conversation now. Policing is broken in this system. The prison industrial complex, we've all agreed, is broken um, since the work of Michelle Alexander and, you know, the movie 13th and, you know, the new Jim Crow. Like, I mean, even, you know, you look at that movie, I mean, you got Newt Gingrich sitting down with uh, Angela Davis agreeing that the prison industrial complex is, 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 is evil and needs to be abolished. Policing is a part of that. Yeah. And, um, and I feel bad for those guys who are on the front lines who are getting their ass kicked for, the, for, for, for their jerk-off coworker, right? But I also know that they're not turning him in. Yeah. Right? I've never thought of it that way, honestly. Like, but that, the standing beside that murderer and watching him murder George Floyd, that makes me sick. And it's really, really hard. I'm a Christian woman. I'm talking to you as a Christian man, like, where do we find the line between anger, race, compassion? Like, how do we have all of these elements of Jesus Christ within us in the midst of what just happened to your brother? I think, I, you know, it's, it's a shame that the Christian tradition has divorced itself so much from its uh, Jewish siblings and roots. Um, yeah, I think one of the most interesting conversations that's happening right now on Twitter is there's a group of rag- rabbis who are asking – um, they are asking, what's wrong with God? Is God broken? They don't think God is broken. They're rabbis, clearly, but they're asking the theological, is God broken? Is this why this is happening, right? Mm-hmm. What's wrong? Is God sick? They're like asking these deep questions. 
And I think it's because they're more in touch with the prophetic tradition from Scripture. I mean, Habakkuk is clearly a book that a lot of people don't read, but it's a, I mean, th- th- this person takes the Almighty to task and demands an answer. Mm. Many of the minor prophets demand answers. Um, I don't think that our anger is necessarily a bad thing. I think holy, righteous anger can be a good thing. Um, I actually think. I actually think it could be fuel um, to change the world. I think it's the same anger that fueled Jesus' ministry when he walked around Nazareth in Galilee and he saw people suffering under an oppressive system. Um, 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 and, 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 and that's what moved Jesus. Jesus saw suffering and then he moved. Um, and, 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 I, and, and, and so, I mean, I... You know, I, 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 I just think that's a good praxis for us going forward um, um, or a good way to kind of think around some of that stuff. I thought, too, about the language that we use, darkness to light, you know, black and white, what's bad, what's good. There's obviously been studies yeah. where, like, little kids will identify a black doll as bad. Is there a call or a way to change the language in which we use in our ministry, in our church? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try and do a lot of that stuff. Um, this Advent, I messed with um, the idea of the, uh, the, the, the hours in the dawn, you know. Um, I talked about the morning light. I talked about the dawn light. I talked about the deep, rich hues and colorful hues of um, the morning dawn um, to get around that darkness and light imagery. I don't wear white robes. I don't wear white stoles. I never use white to represent baptism, Christ, or Easter, or any of those things. If anything, I'll use a rainbow. Um, I don't, um, you know, I don't use that language. I don't use he, him, his language for God. I never gender God um, in any of my sermons. I've never gendered God. I don't, uh, that's stupid. Why are you gendering the Almighty? I mean, even that kind of stuff. I mean, just really, really being willing to examine your language and being willing to be wrong. The greatest things that ever happened to me in my life were because I was wrong. Like, I thought I knew what God was about, and I was wrong. I thought I knew what the church was about, and I was wrong. I thought I knew which direction my life was headed, and I was wrong. So the willingness to be wrong, re-examine your hymnals, the, the worship you're using, the language that you're using, and being, and, and being really willing to, like, I would almost say queer it up, because queer theology has been playing with language for a really long time. Um, and, and learn the history of the stuff you're singing. Learn the history of the, you know, where things come from. Um, but, but, but that light to darkness binary and binaries in general have always been dangerous territory for the church Catholic over 2,000 years. Yeah. Rev Lenny, you can totally say no to this. I'm just wondering if, if there would be any desire or, or wanting to, like, lead us or send us off in prayer yeah absolutely i think it would would be yeah i think it'd be absolutely beautiful to to have you do that because i know people just need like hope and we need love to get set forth in in power in this movement i would be honored to hear a prayer with you of course of course um god is with you 
loving and gracious and liberating God, we come to you at a time where we just don't know what to do. It seems like the whole world's crashing around us. We've been compassionately social distancing in the name of Jesus for so long, we're starting to go stir crazy. And it feels like another revolutionary summer is happening in America. Christ, we know you're in the center of that. We know you are moving amongst all of the uprisings and the peoples and the cries of those who are suffering in America. And we call upon your power. We call upon your name. And we ask you to empower us to get off our asses and on the streets. Amen. Thank you. Thank um, you. One last question I have for you, just so we don't get it twisted. What is the role of a white girl like me in this moment? I would say, you know, you have a pretty big platform. One of my friends, uh, her name is Tori Glass. I don't know if you know her. She does white homework. Mm, okay. Start, go to ToriGlass.com or white homework. And what that does is it gives you curriculum to study white supremacy and the history of systemic racism in your community. So whether you live in the middle of a field in Iowa or you live in L.A., you can use this curriculum and it can guide you. And once you realize what's happening in your area and the history of, what, of, of your area, what's happening currently in your area, you'll be better, you'll be better uh, set to come in solidarity as accomplices in this revolution for your black and brown siblings. Thank you. And where can everybody find you online? Yeah, I'm Lenny A. Duncan on all the things. You can also go to LennyDuncan.com. Um, I have a sub stack that's not officially launched, um, uh, which is United States of Grace. And um, UnitedStatesOfGrace.com will be launching as soon as I get the pre-orders up for the second book and you can find any of my stuff on Amazon, which you shouldn't buy from, uh, right. IndieBound, <laughs> IndieBound. um, yeah, you know, you, you can, if you look, if you look up Reverend Lenny Duncan or Lenny Duncan, um, yeah, church, it'll probably come up. Yeah. And I'm being so edified and educated by dear church love letter from a black preacher to the whitest denomination in the U S please everybody go pick it up. I found it for nine 99 ebook version. So easy to listen to. Um, and that's it. We love you all so much. God bless.